left in many stores waiting for us to buy it. They still initiate the rig of laws to justify it. Yo, what's up with the water and with the air you breathe? He cut you in loose years ago. How come you scared to leave? How come you think you equal? You feel like life is great. How come you call yourself Americans to fight the hate? You fell for the trick, fell for that pack of lies. How come whenever they do something sick, you act surprised? Disillusioned cause he let you wear them suits and ties. Marry his daughter, wear slavery when he suits you die. So, I'm saving the plantation rebellion. Rebellion. I'm saving the plantation rebellion. Rebellion. I'm saving the plantation rebellion. Come on. I'm saving the plantation rebellion. Let's go. Come on. Yeah. Here we go, people, once again. We're coming live from the plantation. Uh behind enemy lines, in the cages, um, living in the concrete jungle that we know as the United States prison system, uh state, federal, immigration, juvenile, women, men, boys, girls, um, Every demographic in society, they have a cage built in America um, to hold someone, to hold a citizen. Um, even in a system, a criminal justice system that the whole world knows is corrupt. Uh, even in a plantation system that the whole world knows violates human rights because of the condition. Even before we get into the racism, the racial profiling, the over-prosecution of poor people, Brown people, black people. Just if you remove everyone out of the system, the, the system itself is inhumane. Before you even put one person in, the bed, the food, the water contamination, the soil, the air quality, um, the inability to deal with the basic necessities of life, controlling diseases, uh, health care, mental health care, all of those things are deficient before one single person. Is put inside the cage, and yet we have over 2.5 million people in these cages, warehouse stacked on top of each other. We're looking at images over and over and over and over of just the sadistic, barbaric nature of this system and the people who create it. You know, think about the people who build these places and what it says about them and what they're willing to accept and what they're willing to subject other people to that they know that they'll never be subjected to themselves. So that's what Live from the Plantation is doing. We're bringing voices from the plantation to describe what's actually going on, not what you see in the mainstream media, not what you see in the soundbite, not what you hear from the the uh, press secretary in the state, but what the people who are actually living this uh, experience on a day-to-day basis. We want to be heard. We want our voices heard. They have a cutoff. They have every rule imaginable to say that we can't speak unless they're there listening on their monitored phone system, uh, in their monitored visitation system. And if we say something that they don't like, which is the truth, if we expose the truth, then we are subjected to the power of the state. We are subjected to being silent. We're subjected to the meager privileges that we have being taken away from us. And if we don't stop and if we continue to resist, 
as the song said, if we continue to rebel against the system, then they put us in the torture chamber, the solitary confinement, where scientists said 14 days after 14 days, the brain damage that's caused by being in solitary confinement cell is permanent. Scientific studies show that the size of a brain will shrink over time in other mammals when it's put in a cage, when it's taken out of the wild and domesticated. These people know what they're doing. They know what they're doing, and yet they do it anyway because of the profit that is involved, because of the, the, the historic nature of this country to exploit. I'm Ben O'Hannibal Rossan, the Alabama Movement, the National Freedom Movement, organizer, activist, whatever you want to call it. But by law, I'm a slave. The laws of this nation say that I'm a slave. But the laws of nature that are endowed in me reject that, denounce that, and fight back against that. And that's what allows me and the people like me to jump out on this front line and are willing to fight anyway to stand before you all, whether it's on live on the plantation, whether we're doing webinars, whether it's um, filming and uploading it to social media, YouTube channels, whether it's it's being innovative with, with, with Twitter, uh, Facebook, whatever we have to do, because we denounce the label of being a slave, and we declare our humanity. We de- declare our right as citizens of the world, not just of this country, but of the world, to be treated with the level of decency and respect that is accorded any human being. There's no reason why one set of human beings should enjoy the luxuries and privileges of being a human being. Now, other ones are being denied for the benefit, the financial benefit of those who are doing the denial. Because in the end, that's what it's all about. It's about economics. This is an economic system. They can call it whatever they want to call it. It's an economic system. It's an economic enterprise. And history shows that. We talk about it um, um, without, without remitting. We do not stop. This is what it's all about. And so our fight against these people is more than just the label. It's more than just the label of criminal justice reform, prison reform, because these are the goals. These are the shadows. You shadow box when you're hitting those terms. Max will tell you mass incarceration is, is, is something that doesn't even exist. You can fight that demon for the rest of your life and you'll be undefeated because it's a demon that doesn't exist. We shadow box when we, when we fight those labels. You have to break it down to call it what it is. It's slave. It's nothing else. Um, we got several guests going to be on tonight. We got Decarcerated Louisiana coming on. Uh, we have um, activists out of South Carolina. Um, we have Be Frank for Justice organization coming on. Uh, we always got Max here with us. And we have our callers. This is a caller driven show. Um, anyone who wants to speak, all you have to do is press one, let your voice be heard. Whether you're directly impacted, indirectly impacted, a concerned citizen, uh, a humanist, someone who understands basic human rights and knows what's going on, this is your platform, you know, um, because the suffering that you're speaking about is is on these plantations. It's on these plantations, and we're your allies, you're our allies, and we're in this thing together. Next, do we have anyone in the host queue? Have any of our other hosts uh, joined in the queue yet? We'll go ahead and introduce them. Let them introduce themselves right quick. 
4192, your mic has been open. Four one nine two's mic is open, and uh, so is two four four four. Hey everybody, this is Savannah. Um, I'm actually just here in support. Um, I'll be joining Benu a little bit later. I reside in Texas, and I'm the founder of Be Frank for Justice and um, outside support for uh, national freedom. Thanks a lot, Savannah. Um, we're going to be playing um, the other host in the queue. I don't know which one, whose number that is, you're calling me, but you're on mute. We'd like for you to come off mute if you can. Introduce yourself to the artist. We're going to go ahead and get started with the show in just a few minutes. Uh, as Savannah said, she's going to be joining us on the other side of the break. Uh, we got a lot of topics we're going to be covering tonight. We're going to be talking about our parole agenda inside of the National Freedom Movement. Uh, we're going to be talking about the private prison and the executive order issued by our new president, uh, Joe Biden, uh, what that means. There was a lot of excitement around that executive order for the first few hours, really for the first few minutes until people um, um, got a chance to uh, got a chance to really see what he was doing and realize that once again, you know, it's another ghost. It's another ghost. It's a nine-year plan, but we'll get into that. Um, and Savannah, she's going to be joining us later, just giving us some principles about um, the organizing dynamic, dynamics involved in inside organizing, outside organizing, uh, the policy work, uh, engaging in the legislative process, uh, building relationships, and what we have to be aware of as we as we move forward in this, in this organizing. Uh, then we're going to get an update on some of the events going around the country. We have an event coming up February 1st dealing with COVID-19, Cage COVID. Uh, it's being organized by some organizers. I think he said out of Florida, maybe if he's listening, he can come on uh, and give us another update. They had a Zoom meeting today. Uh, I did get a chance to sit in on the meeting for a few minutes, but there's just a lot of organizing. Of course, we know the April 3rd uh, parole event nationwide going on. Uh, a lot of support. We had a great call last weekend. We're looking to have another great call this weekend. Uh, we had a call in the middle of the week, and we're organizing a webinar. We want to hear from people, uh, personal experiences. We want to have a webinar about parole so that people around the country can start hearing testimonies. Uh, we can start talking about particular parole laws, uh, the parole process, just to, to, to continue to push this conversation out into the mainstream. Uh, about this broken parole system that we have um, to understand why it has to change and what some of the changes are that we're proposing and putting forward and we're putting our, uh, uh, an agenda together around. Um, are we joined by Decarcerate or Lulu at this time in the host panel? Uh, I'm here. There you go. Okay. Um, yeah, I'm here. Um, Okay, um, y'all hear me, huh? Yep, everybody's here. Yeah, just fine, brother. Go ahead. Oh, okay. This is Elon, but I'm an organizer with Decarcerate Louisiana, and we're <clears throat> fighting for freedom, for liberation, as the brother Banu just explained so beautifully. Um, and that's 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 our work, you know, to uh, remove the the the, the the slavery clause out of the state's constitution as well as the federal constitution and then go out to the system of slavery that 
exists in the on a, in, in in the on a systemic level in the institutions of society. So <clears throat> that's that's all I'll say at this point. All right, thanks a lot. Uh Lulu, are you in the whole queue with us? You want to introduce yourself, let everyone know who's going to be in the queue with us? Yeah, definitely. So I am Lulu. I'm the statewide organizer for the National Freedom Movement out of South Carolina. Um, my organization is called No More Victims, the Healing Restorative Justice Initiative. And I'm just happy to be a part of everything and kind of doing the work on the outside for the guys on the inside. So this is a movement. Thanks a lot. I really appreciate it. You've been doing great work. You know, she had had a little family issue um, with health, but I think everything's getting back, um, getting back healthy. So we're just glad to have her back, uh, bringing her back involved. And like I said, um, just tremendous people uh, stepping up. You know, quite a few people have gotten sick over the last um, couple of weeks or so. And people think that when people are going through things, that that means that they're quitting or giving up on the struggle. But sometimes we have to just uh, wait and figure out, like um, our other brother, um, um, not Yusef. What's his name, brother? Is it Yusef? Yeah, brother Yusef. He had gotten he had gotten sick. So I mean, just we have to be we have to be patient. You know, we have to understand that you know we're going through a very difficult time right now in this in this nation. And people need a break. I mean, people burn out. People get tired. You know, nobody's perfect. We all going to make mistakes. And when you see a person making a mistake, you know, have some compassion. Don't just give up on them. Don't just define them by that mistake. People have done great work around their mistakes before they make a mistake, after they make a mistake. We have to give people room to make mistakes and be normal in society. You know, nobody's going to be perfect. No one's going to make the right decision all the time. But when people make a bad decision, be willing to sit down and listen and hear them out. Give them an opportunity to redeem themselves because we do it every day with the government and with, you know, the, the institutions of power. You know, one court denies, we'll go back. One court denies, we'll go back. We continue to give them another chance to right their wrong. We want the court to right their wrong. The parole board, we get a parole board unlimited opportunities to right their wrong. You know, let's give our let's give our brothers and sisters in the struggle the uh, opportunity to make a mistake and then an opportunity to right their wrong outsole before we just start lashing out and ostracizing or worse. You know, because sometimes people make mistakes and the the, the emotions of the moment get the best of us. And I heat of passion, we make terrible make terrible mistakes. But we have to have these conversations to think about it. Um, we're going to be ready to play a clip uh, from a professor. Uh, Angela Bell, um, I think it's Tulane University. If I said it they want somebody, please correct before we get started. But we just want to hear this clip because uh, some of the things that we're going to pull out of, there's some things you may not agree with about what she said. There's some things that may be different from your perspective, and we'll get a chance to come in on all of these things. But there are some things in this that we feel like it's important for the audience to hear because it's relevant to what we're doing in the National Freedom Movement, Free Alabama Movement, uh, incarcerated Louisiana, um, you know, all of the different inside organizations, Trading Lives Matter, uh, Jailhouse Lawyers Speak, uh, the Plus Party, um, just, you know, and if I forgot someone, it's just because I, I forget by mistake, I'm not trying to exclude anyone, 
um, but just all of the different organizations that are going on around the country on the inside that we're putting these calls together for, that we're doing this organizing for, that we're asking people to come out and get involved in this support. You know, she's going to talk about some things in the context of what the work that we're doing. And so I just wanted people to have a new perspective, a new voice, and then we're going to open up the conversation and we're going to get into the topic of the show. So at this time, we're going to turn it over to our main man, uh, Matt. Uh, Matt, go ahead, Mr. Brandon Kipper. All right, if you don't mind me saying, uh, for our callers who have their mics open, please mute yourself while we play the track. Uh, that way we'll keep your mic open. So when we get back on the other side, all you got to do is say something if you have to. So please mute your uh, phones hey. at this time. Thank you. Excuse me, right. um, Max? Yep. Max, can you yes. hear me? Yes. How do I do that? Because I'm not sure. How, how do you mute yourself? Um, there should be a function on the phone uh, where you can click to mute yourself. No, I, I don't know what kind of phone you got. You know, it should I'll, be I'll, on the screen. Yeah, it should be on the screen. Yeah, I can put it on the Star 1 or Star 6. There's a button he can push off, so it's either Star 1 or Star 6. Sound like that got it. Sound like it got it. All right, Professor Angela right. Bell, Constitution Day 2020, Tulane Law School. Of Professor Angela Allen Bell of the Southern University Law Center. Professor Bell holds the BK Agniotri Endowed Professorship and serves as director of the Lewis A. Berry Institute for Civil Rights and Justice at Southern University Law Center. She is a respected local, national, and international legal scholar and expert on civil and human rights, social and restorative justice, and the interplay between race and justice. It was her research that catapulted the recent movement that in November 2018 successfully ended the use of non-unanimous juries in Louisiana. She is also one of the founding members of the advocacy team that led this effort to reform Louisiana's jury system through the adoption of legislation that would require unanimous juries in criminal trial courts in Louisiana state courts. She has the distinction of having worked on several other historical advocacy campaigns, such as the Angola 3 case, the cases of the Soledad brother, John Clachet, and the case of Robert Holbrook. Thank you for joining us tonight, Professor Bell. And thank you for having me. I am going to talk a little bit about a book chapter that I am working on concerning the 13th Amendment and the way it intersects with race and justice. And most of the time when there is an attempt to have a discussion about the 13th Amendment, and the intersection of race and justice, the conversation is quite predictable. People will often indict the exceptions clause in the 13th Amendment, and they will say that it is in fact the source of all systemic racism. They will cite the 13th Amendment's exceptions clause as the cause of the carceral state. Well, I certainly do not dispute that that exceptions clause is repugnant. I certainly do not dispute that it undermines many of the constitutional protections, but I do feel that these concerns are overstated and I'd like to talk to you about why. So when we look at the exceptions clause in the 13th amendment, it appears in section one. And section one essentially says slavery is abolished, but in the exception 
of when a person is being punished for a crime. In that instance, we actually allow the continuation of slavery. You will also find similar language in Louisiana State Constitution appearing at Article 1, Section 3, making a reference after it promises Louisiana citizens individual dignity, that protection ends by saying we in Louisiana also endorse the idea of holding people in slavery if in fact they are convicted. So for those who espouse the belief that our problem involves the exceptions clause, I would like to propose that we just remove it momentarily. So now if we take that language out of section one, we will see something along the lines of there's no longer slavery or involuntary servitude. My question is exactly what will that accomplish? In other words, what I want to know, is it going to end the disproportionate stops, arrests, prosecutions, convictions, capital sentences, assessments and fines affecting African Americans and minorities disproportionately? Is it going to bring an end to the alarming rate of prosecutorial misconduct? Is it going to stop over-sentencing? Will it end the use of Jim Crow juries? And will we suddenly see a ceasing of bias and racism when it comes to laws and policies? So my point is to you, if we take those words out, the carceral state would remain intact. Nothing is going to be accomplished in terms of justice when we talk about simply removing the exceptions clause. Now, I want to make sure that we understand this is a constitutional question. So what I'm really talking to you about when I talk to you about the carceral state and slavery continuing is liberty. It is justice. These are constitutional promises that I am talking to you about. I am talking to you about at a moment in time where this document tells me that I have these promises, there are 2.3 million people incarcerated. There are another 4.4 million people under some form of penal supervision. So now I would like to ask us to juxtapose for just a second that number that I cited with the fact that there were about 3.5 to 4 million enslaved people emancipated. So now when we hear this, we are now faced with a challenge. How do we reconcile these horrific numbers, the tremendous weight of this with this precious occasion? Because we are in fact here to commemorate a document that means so much to us as a country. So my proposal for us tonight is certainly we celebrate the genius of the Constitution, but we must simultaneously recognize its infirmities. We must also decide tonight has to be honest. And so as we do this honestly, we realize that this document that we commemorate promises liberty 
promises freedom, justice, personal autonomy, the pursuit of happiness, equal protection. We realize at this moment that we really have been walking on a treadmill since 1865. That, in fact, is the year that we adopted the 13th Amendment. We realize since 1787, the year of the Constitution, that allowed slavery to continue to exist. And we realize since 1619, that is the year that mass incarceration started. So let us not ever forget that that system of enslaving people was laying the groundwork for what we now know to be the system of carceral state. That in fact was our first in mass incarceration system. So we are confronting tonight the fact that in section one of the 13th Amendment, there is some legislative deception. But we must be mindful of the location because alongside section one, there is something called section two, which contains an enforcement clause. And that enforcement clause was offered to us by Representative James F. Wilson of Iowa. And he says, design this language that now reads in section two, Congress shall have the power to enforce this article by appropriate legislation. Please don't overlook the use of the word shall. That is not an accident. So when we talk about these drafters who envisioned a section two, we really need to scrutinize who these people were in order to appreciate the essence of this gift we were given in section two. So we have Representative Stevens who walked onto the floor of the Reconstruction Congress after passage of the 13th Amendment and he uttered these words and I quote, we find those states now reducing these men to slavery all over again, and declaring that every little petty offense the black man commits, he shall be sold into bondage. So that even that constitutional provision that we made, it is being avoided and got around by these cunning rebels. Then Henry Wilson goes onto the floor of the Congressional Congress and says during Reconstruction, the poor freemen who a few months ago were leaping and laughing with the joy of a newfound liberty. They are now trembling with apprehension. They are everywhere subject to indignity, insult, outrage, and murder. Thousands, tens of thousands of these harmless black men have been wronged. They have been outraged by violence and hundreds upon hundreds murdered. The local authorities screen these murderers. The people protest against punishing the white men for murdering these black men and the murderers go unpunished. So these were not naive men. They were not just talkers, these men who gave us the enforcement clause in section two. 
they did many meaningful things beyond draft the 13th Amendment. They gave us the Civil Rights Act immediately after because of these things that they realized were taking form. They gave us the Judiciary Act of 1867 and then swiftly gave us the 14th Amendment. And so I want to be sure we understand their intentions were clear when they gave us this enforcement clause. They did not just want to release people from ownership. They were not just confronting mass incarceration. They wanted to remove the incapacity of slavery. They wanted to eradicate every badge and every incident of slavery. They wanted universal liberty, that as a matter of national, not just local concern. And they wanted to end all, and I emphasize the word all, forms of arbitrary domination. So section one of the 13th Amendment, we have to enforce that by judicial review. That is not the case with section two. Congress has the power under section two to address many of the ills that we are seeing people protest every night on the news. And they have acted over the years to do so. They have done things like addressing peonage in 1867. They have banned private housing discrimination. They have enacted a hate crime lack, uh, act under Article uh, Section 2 of Article, the 13th Amendment. Congress can and should do more. This was not an ornamental part of the 13th Amendment. It was a tactical response. So now as I close, I just keep hearing the voice of Dr. Martin Luther King. Every time I see these protests going on in this country and what he says when he talks about riots and protests is that we should not confuse what they are. They are merely the language of the unheard. So in 2020, we have people who feel words written 233 years ago have yielded hollow promises. We have people who feel unheard. We have people who feel in 1787 when this document was created in a neutral way to tolerate, to bless slavery, racism, colonialism, and the loss of liberty they recognize it is doing the very same thing in 2020. So as I close, I do want to say I thought about the hour and I realized it's late and I tried to think of a dramatic ending and I considered perhaps making a really mad, menacing face to show you the repulsion I feel when I see that exceptions clause. And then I thought about doing a great big Botox smile because I'm so excited about the promises that I see in the enforcement clause. I even thought about reenacting a scene from 1854 in Massachusetts at the anti-slavery rally on July 4th, 
where we had Sojourner Truth and David Thoreau and Lord Garrison, who actually burns the Constitution and the Fugitive Slave Act. And as he does so, angrily calls it a covenant with death and an agreement with hell. But I settled on a different ending because it occurred to me that the Confederates had also written their own constitution. And I found myself quite troubled to imagine being governed by that document over this one. And so as I end, I choose to credit the framers of the 13th Amendment for the foresight that they had in giving us Section 2, for doing what history allowed them to do. And I end by asking, have you done what history has allowed you to do? And that concludes my contribution to tonight's panel. Thank you, uh, Max. Um, you know, when I heard that, I, I received the link. I think uh, Brother Lumba has sent me the link twice. I hadn't got a chance to listen to it. But when I finally got a chance to listen to it, I mean, I was just, even just then, her words are spellbinding. They just they just come off like, like melody. I mean, the the... The clarity of what she's saying, the picture that she paints, she was so poetic. Um, and she asked the question, you know, are we doing everything that history allows us to do? And she broke down the, 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 the 13th Amendment. She said, Section 1 is for the courts to decide. Section 2 is for Congress to decide. And it made me think about the work that we've been doing, the emphasis we placed on the exception clause, the 13th Amendment, and the, the, the overlooking of Section 2. And I'm not saying anyone in particular. I'm just saying in general, the conversations that we've had about this amendment, I don't recall Section 2 being emphasized at all, just to be quite frank. But when she brought that back to my attention, and we're talking about the power that Congress has to act. And we're talking about now the hoopla about the Democrats being in control and, and, and all of these different things. And so now we have the president with the authority uh, to make executive decisions. And now we have the Democrats in Congress with the authority under Section 2. And one of the things that she spoke on that I've already felt in my heart, I already noticed, I've, I talk about this is that the laws that were passed, I asked Brother Zuma last night, I said, what's the first thing that happened in this country after the 13th Amendment was ratified? And he said, the black codes was passed and the bankruptcy laws were passed. And it is these laws that are in existence that shows that simply removing the 13th Amendment is not enough. The exception clause is not enough because of the laws the laws that surround it. And I think that what we're doing in the National Freedom Movement, we're, we're dealing with this parole issue. This is one of the laws that we're asking Congress to pass. You know, these are the laws, the the, the, uh, the, the, the crime bill laws and the recidivism laws and the mandatory minimum laws and the habitual offender laws 
Um, these are the laws that were passed to carry out the, the, the re-enslavement of our people, you know, under the legal standard when it became the constitutional law. And so all of these laws, we have to go back and look at them and figure out where are the ones that, that are standing in the way of freedom. And we have to put an agenda around them. We can't do all of them at one time. We just have to figure out a way to freedom, to create a pathway to freedom. And that's what the freedom movement is. We're trying to create a pathway to freedom through our organizing. We're trying to reach people on the inside and organize people and educate people. And that speech that she gave needs to be transcribed and it needs to be sent in all the prisons so that people can understand why we have a dual fight on our hands. We have a fight with the state house and the legislators and getting these amendments ratified. But we also have a fight to light the fire behind the Congress to pass laws and to repeal laws and to apply pressure on the president to sign these laws. You know, that's that's how this democratic process was well, not a, it's, a, it's partly democratic, but it's a republican form of government. But we have to utilize these processes to bring about the change. And so when we go into the legislators and we're asking them to repeal this exception clause, we also have to have other laws in our in our hands to say, and we need these laws passed to create pathways to freedom because she's not Professor Bell. After hearing the words, she's not going to allow us to be deceived or to be deluded or to fight a ghost. You can't fight a ghost any longer. When you listen to those words, you cannot fight the ghost any longer because she actually are you doing everything. And if you're doing everything, it is getting the exception clause removed and it's Section 2, applying the pressure on the state houses and Congress. Um to undo this thing, to undo this monster, and to understand that when we see the president sign an executive order um, abandoning private prisons, that's not enough to sign a law to say what you're going to do in nine years when you no longer be in office. You know what I'm saying? You've automatically excluded yourself from the accountability process. So those are just some of my thoughts. Um, I would like to hear from my other host, Max. Do we have any callers? If there's any callers, we ask you to press one. Um, we want to hear some comment on this because those were some very powerful words being spoken. We're going to kick it over to Lulu, then we're going to come to Ilumba, um, and then Savannah, she's uh, just about up to be joining us in, in about three minutes. So let's let's go around the host panel. All right. Uh, all get those some lines comments. are open. Okay. All those lines are open. So uh, Lulu, Ilumba, Savannah, let's hear from you all, and we want to hear from the caller. Please press one. I'm going to turn it over to Lulu. No. My take on all of that is just, you know, wow, right? It's already um, a huge educational gap for people to understand the breakdown of the 13th Amendment, let alone take into consideration some of the additional things she she spoke about um, in regards to that, that, the second clause. And so, you know, how do we wrap our head around educating people? How do we wrap our head? Because most people have no idea of the, you know, the mess that this particular um, amendment has caused. Most people have no idea how this amendment has continued to shape our economy and our our country um, around involuntary servitude. And so 
just, you know, being able to have those conversations, but how do we get that on a large platform? How do we get it more mainstream to where people begin to kind of put two and two together themselves so that they can understand the huge disconnect and the despairing differences and, and that which we're trying to explain. And that's, that's the most complicated part because I saw someone today who said, um, you know, in regards to President Biden signing the, the you know, the waiver of the new, the new private prison contract, he didn't understand how that impacted racial inequality. And so, you know, I, I took the time to explain that to her, but, and, and, you know, thankfully she was someone who was able to receive and understand um, based upon the information I have provided her with. There's so many people who don't know and they don't understand. And and because um, the way, you know, typically we're set up as adults, people reject what they don't understand. And so that, that, that plays a twofold, twofold portion to this, this entire conversation. Um, they reject what they don't understand is going on on the inside of these institutions, and they reject what they don't understand about the creation of this here country. So um, that's, that was just a really powerful statement, and that was kind of my takeaway from it, like just how do we kind of play this out on a, on a larger scale. Absolutely. I agree um, with what she's saying. I'm the caller. Um, I work for the Texas Criminal Justice Coalition, um, leading the Texas Women's Justice Coalition, and I am formerly incarcerated in school. I think education is key. I think that, like she said, there's just a lot of misinformation in the community, and I think that we're going to make our most powerful movement with educating the community so that when you're able to talk to your state representatives, when you're able to talk to legislators, when you're able to talk to senators, you have somebody from every lens of the community that has come together and is voicing the same concerns and pushing for the same modification or takeaway from the Constitution. Okay, thank you. Um, I appreciate your comments. And, you know, even in doing that, you know, we know that, that, that this starts with the education process. But like she said with Section 2 with Congress and these laws, you know, we have to have a roundtable discussion. We have to have a think tank where we sit down and, and, and look at these laws, look at the Prison Litigation Reform Act, the Anti-Terrorism and Effective Death Penalty Act, um, the, uh, the the Crime Bill, and the um, – the Sentencing Reform Act of, of, of 1984, you know, we have to identify the main, because they have gates. They have gates. It's like a gated community. The, the laws function like a gated community, and we have to figure out which gates can we tear down that will open up the door to freedom for people in this country. And so when we have that, that, that part two, the Section 2 conversation, We've got to already been and had this conversation by ourselves because if not, you're going to have this group over here talking about any 100 to 200 laws. You're going to have this group, any 100 to 200 laws. This group, any 100 to 200 laws. 
and we're going to drown ourselves out. You know, we're going to have so many things. Like, we had a great conversation last night about this parole agenda that we're putting together, and we went in with nine issues, and we came out with two or three. And really, there's only one issue that we push that overrides all of the issues. There's just a few other little minor things that we would have to add to it, but, like, we've got to get our platform together. And a lot of people have not worked in cross-state coalitions before. And we become territorial and isolationist. And it's like, okay, well, my state, we're going to be doing this, and and our state, we're going to be doing that. But the U.S. Congress is not territorial. It's all states. And Section 2 clearly states that Congress has a role to play in this. And so we have to galvanize ourselves to apply pressure on Congress on which particular laws we need. What what do we need it to say? And we're going to get into that a little bit more in the second half of the show. But I appreciate your comments. Max, do we have any other callers before we allow Brother Luma to um, expound on, on what Professor uh, Bell just... No, no one has their hands up other than the callers. His mics are already open. Okay, go ahead, Brother Luma. All right, can y'all hear me? Yeah, we can yes. hear you just fine, brother. All right, so... Um... What I get from what Professor Bell is saying is that pretty much the same thing um, you get from it, and that is if we remove the the exception clause, slavery as punishment from crime from the federal constitution and the state constitution, then that doesn't... Um, that doesn't end the work of of um freedom, you know, that doesn't end the work of of um of of us fighting for our liberation. So um I think that that once that exception clause is removed and I think it should be removed because the the it's 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 allowing government to to practice slavery and to criminalize, to, to, to marginalize and criminalize people and put them on the plantation and say, and, and enforce slavery. And, and, and they can say that they're doing it because look what the 13th Amendment says, that if you, if, if, if you are convicted of a crime, then we can um, legally... Um, put you on a plantation and um, practice slavery. So I think that, that it's important to get rid of the, the exception clause so that so that governments no longer can use that as an excuse so that they, you know, a, a, as to protect the institution of slavery. So I think on the one hand, we need to do that. We need to get rid of it. Now, on the second hand, I think that well, on the other hand, I think that just like you were saying, Brother Banu, I think that we need to um, to to what, what I would like to see is this. I would like to to see some legislation drawn up that that um. Say for instance, if we 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 want to um, revamp parole law in this country, whether it's on the federal level 
on the state level. And or it could be we want to um, get rid of the habitual offender law or the anti-terrorism act or um, whatever the case may be. I think that that we should lay some legislation out. And when we lay this le- legislation out, I think that it should talk about slavery. I think I think our angle should be slavery. I think that the way that Professor Bell talks about the Thirteenth Amendment and and when that law was passed, how they the states um, start passing black codes and they created a convict leasing system and they start marginalizing, criminalizing the freedmen and free women right after the Civil War. I think that this legislation should include this historical context in the beginning. And then once that is covered, I think that there should be another section that comes after that that talks about um, ongoing harm, injury, and damages that was suffered by the descendants of the freed men and freed women, which would be people that exist right now, that you know us, that um, that 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 is being marginalized and criminalized in these ghettos that we live in, where you know we're dealing with um, poverty, we're dealing with um, stuff like um, what's that? The um, addiction. That this is. Nicaraguan Contra Drug for Weapons Program, where the country was flooded with dope. Gary Rabb did a report on it, um, and a, a lot of information came out showing where the CIA had their hands in it and, and, and allowing um, tons of cocaine to flood African-American communities starting in south-central Los Angeles. So, so you know, all 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 this, and, and it's probably, you know, more where we could show where we are being marginalized, we are being criminalized. You know, we can even talk about environmental racism and how our environments are designed, you know, in such a way to where, you know, we, 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 it, it, it doesn't empower us with resources and the things that we need to sustain ourselves, to, to be in control of our food, of our water, of our um, education systems, to be able to define who we are and, 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 and things of that nature. So I think that, that, that some legislation should also cover the damages the damages, you know, and, and and how you know we suffer from this, and then after the damages, we can say that okay, well, here's this. This is our relief. This is what we asking for you to revamp um, the parole um, law, or remove the habitual offender bill, or um, um, abolish the anti-terrorism um, and effective death penalty act. So I'm kind of looking at it like on a level, if, if, if y'all can understand what I'm saying, I, I, I want to use this as an example, all right? Like the tobacco um, industry, they were sued in the 90s because they didn't properly put consumers on notice that 
their um, product had some addictive stuff in it, qualities, you know, nicotine or whatever. So lawyers sued the tobacco industries, and they was um, under under the theory of negligence, willful negligence, however however that was, and they was found guilty. And after they was found guilty, the court made them pay billions of dollars to set up uh, rehabilitation centers to help people to get, you know, to, to, to quit. So I think that once once we laid this incident out from enslavement to mass incarceration in this bill that I'm contemplating, if that can be, if, if we can get our attorneys, our legal-minded people to lay that out, to lay that whole process out, and then come back and show, talk about in the next section some damages, how we suffered, you know, the harm and damages that it caused us. And then in the next section, come with the relief. This is what we want. We want the um, changes in the parole, remove um, the habitual offender, um, set up some education and rehabilitation centers, you know, to help these people to, um, to you know, to, to gain skill sets and stuff that they need to um, lead productive lives. Um, people that's on the outside create a social and economic bill of rights. People that's in these correctional facilities give them a bill of rights that will um, respect their human rights. So I think something like that needs to be done and in, 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 um, in we could use Section 2 as, as, as um, something to, like, like, like to use to make our case, you know, of enforcement, you know, to, 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 to make the state congresses or the federal congresses to to um to enforce these measures, but I think that that it's going to also come with some like um, the sister was saying earlier. I think that these issues we can't just draw up legislation like what I'm contemplating and then go to Congress, and because they tend to look at us like, well, you've done something to be there. That's why you're there, and so. I think they're going to marginalize us. They're not going to hear us. But I think if we organize and mobilize the people and educate them around these issues, the 13th Amendment, the black codes, and the whole process, the whole incidents from enslavement to mass incarceration, I think that if we do that, then I think that I, I think that people, and, and I think this is the right time to do it because with the George Floyd movement and and we seeing how white cops is getting off for you know for murder. You know it 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 it, it has opened a lot of people's eyes, both black and white, to see the racism in the system. So so it's easy. It, it, so it seems like 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 racism, slavery, um, um, words like that is is is. It's like watchwords right now, it, and, and, and people are seeing the connection with slavery, racism. You know, they, people are beginning to see the connections right now. So I think this is a good time to organize and mobilize the people around these issues so that when we go to Congress and present this legislation, present this term, as I am contemplating, and Congress can look and see that they got people power behind this too because we can't just go like with with up to Congress like Representative Kanye's did 
with his DOC thing, reparations and expect Congress to do it. Congress is not, I don't believe Congress is going to act just if we come with some, 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 some good stuff. I think that Congress has to see people probably. They see our communities behind, behind us and, and, and demanding change, then I believe Congress is going to um, listen. They're going to hear, and I believe that they'll act. And that's all I have to contribute right now at this point to the conversation. Well, I tell you what, Delumbo, you broke it down. <laughs> you broke it down, man. You broke down section one and section two, the way to put that thing together then. Um, and that's exactly how it's got to be done. Section one, you know, it's got to be put together, put in a historical context. It has to show the damages. And then section two has to show what the relief has got to be. So uh, you you, uh, you really um, uh, elucidate those, those, those points. Just, I mean, flawless. Uh, we up against our first hour. We're going to take a break. Uh, Max is going to put on a little music for us to give people an opportunity to just um, receive the information that has been put out there, just to receive it and let it sit on your soul. Um, and we're going to take a break, and we're going to come back on the other side for the second hour. We're going to follow up with Savannah giving her breakdown of what Professor Bell said, and then we're going to get into a couple of topics that we have uh, on the other side of the break. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Uh, this is uh, one of your co-hosts for tonight, Ben Hannibal. We have Brother Lumba on, Sister Lulu, and Savannah. Uh, we're all in the host queue tonight. Please be joined by everyone who's listening. So listening tonight, listening later, whenever you listen and get this message, please know we're here. The National Freedom Movement, a lot of great organizations also on board. Uh, we're ready to do this work. Live from the presentation, we'll be right back. Now greetings to the world. Voice of the one big gangzilla alongside Skrillex. Tempano! Owee! Up the place, turn up the place and make them all out fun. And we have blaze the fire, make it fun. Then we must up the place, turn up the place and make some fun. Why run? And we will end your week just like a Sunday. We must up the place, turn up the place and make them all out fun. Relax, I blaze the fire, make it fun. Then we must up the place, turn up the place and make some fun. Why run? And we will end your week just like a Sunday.
and make them all have fun. And we have blaze the fire, make it fun. Then we must up the place, turn up the base and make some fun. Why run? And we will end your week just like a Sunday. We must up the place, turn up the base and make them all have fun. Relax and blaze the fire, make it fun. Then we must up the place, turn up the base and make some fun. Why run? And we will end your week just like a Sunday.
Um, I don't see her 244 number here, and if she's on one of our other phones, uh, Savannah pressed the number one, so I know which one it is. I know she sent a message that said that she got a call from inside, be back on shortly, and she came back after that. Okay. She'll be back in just a second. So, uh, as I said, you know, um, we're putting together components of Section 2. Uh, we're starting out with the parole component. This is going to be an agenda item that we're going to carry forward um, until the end. Uh, there are other laws um, we're talking about, even within the context of parole, Brother Lombo uh, spoke on it. We're asking that funding, if, if you all have read the crime bill and you know the law under Section 2 that were implemented, um, there was a, a string attached to Joe Biden, President Joe Biden. He told the state that he's going to give them basically unlimited funds and that in exchange, they have to come with these rollbacks of the good times. They have to roll back the uh, um, um, paroles. They have to, to come with 85% law. They have to come with mandatory minimums. They have to enact. Um, the, the, the federal government, through the enforcement clause under Section 2, made states pass all of these laws in order to get funding. So strategically, we're going to be asking, demanding that those funds be redirected, that they stop providing those funds in that manner and start using those funds just for the services that Brother Luma talked about, uh, reintegrating back into society, job skills, and even dealing with mental health. No one's coming out of this unscathed. Everybody's coming out of this impact. They have the resources. They have to redirect those resources to heal and to help people, to heal and to rebuild communities that they destroyed. They destroyed it. Um, Professor Bell said back in, in 1865, she said they, they were they were killing our people. Same thing. She, she talked about the process of the, of the unpunished murders and, and the people coming out protesting against prosecuting the whole town. We still see it today. The, 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 the police association and all of these different groups come together demanding that no charges be filed. Um, I saw uh, the Ava Duvernay, she's coming out with a program, um, the, uh, what is it, um, dealing with law enforcement. She's trying to make them start being more transparent um, uh, as they go through these processes. So, so people are coming back strategically organizing, but those of us on the inside, we still have a problem. We still don't have our freedom. And so our component of even though we support what they're doing, our component, our, our role in this is to get our freedom back. we got to identify the law that will give us our freedom back. We've identified some things in the parole law. Um, and so that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to put the list together. Uh, we want to reach out to, you know, we're sending this, 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 this request out to anybody that wants to help us on the inside. We understand you already have your ideas. We understand you already have things going on. We have some things that we want to put out, and we need people to support that, you know, support our ideas and support the things that we're putting out. Because I can tell you exactly what laws need to be changed for me to get free. You can come and tell me, oh, this law, that law. I can tell you exactly what laws need to be changed for me to get free. But let me tell you, Brother Luma can tell you exactly what law needs to be changed for him to get free. I can tell you how many people will get free 
if you do the things that we're requesting. I can tell you all of your complaints about the wall. We can tell you exactly what you can do to wipe all those problems out. Are you all willing to listen to us? The National Freedom Movement is our seat at the table. We're tired of pulling up the other people's table. We're creating our own table. This is our table. We're sitting down. We're inviting you to come to our table. We're trying to enforce Section 2 of Article 1, Section 13, the particular laws that they use to trap us. Uh, under our parole platform, we're calling for federal paroles to be brought back. They took federal paroles in 1984. We want federal parole to be brought back because we just look at the debacle with the pardons that President Trump uh, issued. We, we see now what this pardon power is. It's not for the people. It's for them. We saw it with Obama, you know. People say, oh, well, he let more people like that. So what? They the ones made the decisions about who was going to get it. They picked and choose, you know, and they picked the low-hanging fruit, and they picked their friends, and they picked their people. We're trying to put something together for us within the National Freedom Movement. Um, Sister Lulu can tell you what law needs to be changed for her husband to come home. Savannah can tell you what laws need to be changed for her brother and her son to come home, you know, because these groups, these people, we're listening, we're either on the inside or we're listening to people on the inside, you know. We know what it takes to put our families back together. And when we come out the door, we know the services that we need. We know that drug treatment needs to be real. We know that people don't need to be violated and sent back for drug addiction because drugs are... I can get any drug I want within the next 20 minutes. I can get heroin, ice, locker, cocaine, pills, suboxone. I can get whatever I want, you know, because these institutions are, they are just, you know, they, they're all the evil that's known to me is what they are. These, these places are pure houses of evil. So if we're going to have this conversation about the 13th Amendment and abolishing slavery, and changing this law, we also have to talk about the process that's going to bring people out of it. Um, we're calling it a pathway to freedom. Our parole agenda is, 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 is a pathway to freedom. That's what we're trying to create. That's our slogan, a pathway to freedom. That's all we're concerned with. We're trying to create a pathway to freedom. If, if, if the work that you're doing does not create a pathway to freedom for the people who are, who are, who are being oppressed and, and in bondage, you know, it's, 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 it's incomplete. Not saying it's irrelevant, not saying it's insignificant, it's incomplete. You know, we have to talk about Section 1 and Section 2. What are the laws? Where are we going to apply the pressure? The U.S. Congress has the power. We know what the crime bill says. We know the strings that they attach. We know how they control funding. We know what that funding did. That funding, if you go back and read it, that funding is what built the prison. They gave them funding to build the prison after they enacted the laws because they knew the effect that the laws that they passed was about to have. They knew that they was about to entrap millions of people. And then everything's working to perfection. So we have to get these laws that are being used to deny, as Professor Bell said, our liberties, our due process, you know, our right to freedom and to enjoy life. We have to figure out what laws did they implement. What are their what are the where are the gates in this apparatus that we need to tear down? And I think we've already identified some. 
Um, I focus on parole once again. Um, it's Savannah back. If there's any callers, you want to press one. Uh, you have questions, comments, something you want to say. We want to hear from you. That's what we're here for. Savannah's line hey, everybody. There you go. All right. Hey, good evening, everybody. Where are we at in the conversation? I know I didn't really get to give my uh, feedback on the um that's where we are. Professor. Oh, okay. That's where we all right. All right, all right. So, um, I really wanted to echo what Lulu said, right? Um, because education is so super important. But like this is this conversation, you know, we hear and we live on the plantations and the focus is on people on the inside, but we always fail to mention that like the education should be centered around people on the inside because there's a the affected by these changes that would and could happen. You know, if the states are successful in, you know, removing the exception clauses by amending their state constitution. So, uh, you know, when we're talking about what education looks like, you know, we have to remember that it should start on the inside. Like people from on the inside uh, should be a part of, of this movement. Um, they should be educated on what it is that we're doing and how it's going to affect them. Uh, if for no other reason that they could educate their loved ones and their family members. Um, But, you know, I've had a bunch of hurdles with education just in, you know, starting the movement here in Texas to amend our state constitution. Um, I haven't gotten a lot of resistance just yet, but um, I have gotten some strong resistance from the people who are vocal um, in their opposition for, you know, changing history is what they call it. Um, but, yeah, I mean, um, that's that's all I really wanted to just add is that, you know, education is, is key, um, not only um, when we're looking at um, righting these wrongs, but really with, with anything. It's like people need to know um, what's expected of them and they need to know, like, what the outcomes are that were, that were expected. All right. Thanks a lot. We appreciate that. Um, if there's any callers you want to chime in on the conversation, yes, please press one. We'll get you. Go ahead, Matt. Nine five two zero. Your mic is open. Good evening, everybody. Can y'all hear me? Sir. Hey, there it is. There it is. Good to hear from you, brother. Glad you made it with us tonight. As always, you live faithful every weekend. We always um, glad to hear from you. Good. Good to be here, brother. Um, just enjoying the conversation, man, and. And like this brother Elijah, um, from the inside, you know, and I was brother Ben New, I just wanna um pick it back on a, one of the issues that you was talking about about changing law. We know what laws that need to be changed in order for us to make it back home. And uh, that that really stood out to me tonight when you were saying that because it it, it took me back to the barbaric, uh, unconstitutional, degrading, habitual offender. I, I don't know how a person could even sit down and conjure up in their mind to keep such evil and such such dehumanizing uh, standards on a person's life with this habitual offender act because I don't care where in the world 
that you live or wherever you reside, right is right and wrong is wrong. And and in the way that I look at this habitual offender thing, man, it's like they tried to resurrect the dead. Man tried to resurrect the dead. And the reason I say that is because how do you, and help this make sense to me because I don't understand, how can you bring the life, bring back to life a sentence that a man has EOS, meaning in a sentence decades ago, and you can take those same sentences that a man EOS decades ago, and you can bring them back to life. You can resurrect those sentences again and heap them upon his head again and increase his sentence with the habitual offender act or the habitual offender law. I, I, I have yet to wrap my mind around that because I was taught from a little child up that right is right and wrong is wrong. And I've dissected this habitual offender law and there's nothing right about it. I, I mean, absolutely nothing right about it. And, and it, it blows my mind that we can still sit here and say that we are God-fearing people in America and that we love our neighbors as we love ourselves, but we can heap punishment upon a man that we wouldn't want anybody to heap punishment upon our head. And with this habitual offender act, man, I think that's one of the one things that they really need to be focusing on because it's it's unconstitutional. It's just unreal, and it has destroyed so many lives. And the reason I can state these facts is because it's affected my life so badly, man. I mean, I've been in prison since my sons were little boys. Now I have great-grandchildren through my sons, and I'm still in prison because of how this offender I I mean, for crimes that was dead years ago, and they enhanced my sentence, and I, I just can't wrap my mind around that. And if anybody that's on this show tonight can help me understand how can they get away with this for so many decades, please do so, and I please do so. I know somebody that can answer that. Um, Brother Matt. Can I speak to that? Yes, go ahead. So, you know, that that touches me. You know, that plays on my heart because my husband has been incarcerated since he was 18 years old and he's now 41. And so, if his ages out of a criminal mindset or ages out of criminal mentality or criminal behavior or whatever you want to call it. And, and like you said, how can you basically wrap your head around doing something that's wrong? And that goes back to the fact that majority of the people have no idea until they are impacted by incarceration themselves, whether it be, you know, their close loved one or someone in their family, to even understand the breakdown of the system. We have so many people who are just living in this country who feel like the police are there to serve and protect, and that's what they actually do. And all of us are just acting crazy, and we try to come against blue lives. You know, people don't understand it on a on a small level as far as the police are concerned, 
So they absolutely don't understand it um, on a judicial level. They don't understand how the prosecutors are basically in control of sentencing now. It's not even in the judges' hands because of these Arconian laws that they have put into place. And so what happens is when we say, how can you possibly treat a human being the way that you wouldn't even treat a wild animal, um, it's because they don't know. And, you know, it's because they really, you know, you have people who know and you don't have enough people who know, if that makes sense. And so that's the reason why these these ways and these things are able to be perpetuated because even at the end of the day, like, for example, today, there were two different that came out of the state of South Carolina in regards to neglect of inmates from two different um, news, from, from two different media outlets. And each time the institution was was able to come back and say that these were just one-offs, these were things that just happened. If it's never being brought into light that there is um, a breakdown in the system so that, so that people can understand it, because there are so many people out here who just feel like, well, if you don't want the time, you shouldn't do the crime. Well, those people also don't understand the amount of time that people are being stacked up with in comparison to other people and in other places. And so when we look at the disparity difference, I mean, Wisconsin, somebody can get five years for a murder homicide, and in South Carolina, you get 35. You know, what is the difference between the crimes that you committed in Wisconsin versus the crime that you committed in South Carolina? And I think that once we start to take a look at things on a national level, like across the board, if all prisons and crimes are, you know, you're giving these, mandatory sentences and this truth in sentencing, how come it's not the same across the board? And really what it boils down to is money. And once you exposed and once people are exposed about the type of money that's coming into these institutions and coming into these prisons and the little rehabilitation that's going into these individuals that ninety five percent of them are going to be released into society anyway, um, the exposure of this the knowledge of this, the education of this, because at the end of the day, most people are very rational. Uh, whether or not they're Republican, Democrat, whether they like black people or they don't like black people, if they knew half of the stuff or even a quarter of the stuff was taking place inside of these institutions or was moving the way that it was, they would not be coming with this reason. So that is what we are basically passing with, exposing the truth. And helping people to understand that those are human beings inside of those laws. It's not wild animals. We're not feeding and trying to rehabilitate raccoons. So that's the reason why it's able to go on, because they have put on this facade about what is actually happening in prison on so many different levels. It's crazy. And that's all because of the money game. Well, well stated, true indeed. You know, Alabama, we're going through this thing right now where they can invest over three billion dollars in new prison, and everything is shrouded in secrecy. Everything is under private contract. You know, but two, two or three senators, they got it in the news that legislators are questioning the governor and them about their plan. They questioned the commissioner today, but the people who were doing the questioning were saying, "Well, we got prisons in our county." And and those are good jobs and good families, and we ain't trying to, you know what I'm saying? And then the other guy was like, well, you know, they were commercial. They were legislators with a background in commercial real estate. And they was like, 
we don't have a problem with them making money, but we want to know where the percentage is. Like we we know eight or nine or ten percent percentage is, is okay, but what are these people going to make? That's how they were talking numbers. They never said anything about the suffering, about the drug issues, the violence, the murders, the mental health, the DOJ report. None of that was part of the conversation about why they were questioning those people. It was just all about the money. You know what I'm saying? And, and I'm going to say one final thing, and then we got another call. I'm going to let them come on. And I wanted to hear from Matt on, on these conversations tonight. But I said this before, I'm going to say it again. The cell that I'm in right now, okay, and we talk about a dog, okay, if a dog is on the other side of that door and I'm on this side of this door, there's nothing wrong. We've been taught to accept it. But if me and the dog trade places, if I if, if I brought a dog in this cell that I'm in and I got on the other side of that door and that was my dog, if the dog found people pulled up, I would be arrested for holding a dog in this cell. They would take the dog out of the cell and put me in the same cell that they arrested me for for holding the dog. And the law justified it. The law said put him in jail. They would put me back in the cell that they arrested me for holding the dog in. And they'll make me get the dog out of the cell. That's the kind of system that we have right now. That's the kind of system that we're trying to get people to understand. These are the kind of laws that have been passed that allow them to lock people up. Like, the, like uh, Professor Bell quoted the, the, the statesman on the state floor. But any little law, they locking us up. Black people being locked up all over the country for these kind of laws. A law that says that if me and a dog traded places and I was free and the dog was in the city, they would arrest me and put me in a cell just like this and let the dog go. So, uh, Max, I want to hear your comments on uh, the conversation tonight, particularly with the things that Professor Bell had said uh, in relation to this movement that we did. Well, wow. Between what she said and what was also said here during the commentary, it would take me quite a bit to really cover it all. Um, I think I'm going to be forced to uh, play the clip on Abolition Today, our master class on modern slavery abolition, and bring it down there with some of the vets we'll be bringing in next week as well. Um, You know, I respect Dr. Bell and the work that she has done, right? But there's levels of this. Uh, As Lulu pointed out, people, some people don't know, some people do know. But right at the heart of most of that is me. Like, I I have a a front seat window to watch it all and participate. Probably nobody in the country that has a bigger picture than I do. Uh, So advice is relative, right? It should include uh, information you don't already know and also suggest actions you haven't already done. You mentioned we don't talk about uh, Section 2. There's not just levels to this, but there's a process as well. The first thing we had to do was get people on the same page that it's actually slavery. And Professor isn't even on that page yet. Uh, She traced slavery, she traced mass incarceration back to slavery and then projected mass incarceration on slavery, saying that was the first uh, mass incarceration period, instead of doing the reverse and tracing slavery up until mass incarceration and saying this ain't mass incarceration, it's slavery. 
Section 2 in on January, I think it was the 3rd, Season 2, our first episode of Abolition Today, we covered batches and incidents of slavery in detail, including clips from Professor William Carter, who broke down exactly how we can attack this. We offered it as a new tool to start using, because now is the time. Within the Abolish Slavery National Network, we're already working with Habakkuk Cannon, who's an attorney that owns a firm called the Abolitionist Law Firm. We're working with the ACLU as well as the NAACP, to have them start attacking these badges and incidents of slavery uh, that are attached to the 13th Amendment. But to do that, you have to first uh, point out that this is slavery, and all these things attached to it are what? Badges and incidents of slavery. Uh, so it, the language is extremely important. We're building that legal team to cover these and get them done. But even before that all is done, is the educational process goes beyond you and me and the people around us. We have to educate Congress. So since uh, 2017, when we did the prison workshop, we marched also on Washington, D.C., and we talked about the stuff right there. We have been demanding congressional hearings on the 13th Amendment and its effect on the United States since 1865. That's all we want to cover. And bringing experts to testify, bringing people who are physically affected by this thing, and show not just Congress, but the world what we're dealing with a crime against humanity, which is systemic and all pervasive within our entire society. Just about everything we do depends on slavery. And she said that when we say it like that, when we say that this is a crime against humanity, it has to end because it's affecting all parts of our society, and it comes from the reality of the 13th Amendment, she said that we're kind of overstating our concern. And I don't agree with that at all. Um, so the Hold on one second, Max. Max, we got a lot of yeah. background noise. Um, uh, would you all please mute your phones? Um, if you're not speaking right now, I'm not sure where the background noise is coming from. All right. Okay, go ahead, Brother Max. And you, you're not very – we can hear you, but it's not real clear. Let's see how it's now. Go ahead. How is that now? Is it clearer? It's not really, but uh, we can understand you well. Go ahead. Um, well, as I said, that I don't ag- agree with her that we're over. Uh, our concerns are being overstated. Uh, if you were to look at any other crime against humanity, like genocide, uh, how could you overstate that if you're pointing to the actual thing there? Look, here's the genocide. We're calling it because it is a genocide. Well, that's how we're dealing with this thing with slavery. And that's where we run across the brick walls because it's hard for people to accept the fact that the United States would participate willingly and intentionally in a crime against humanity. But all the facts show that. And she also pointed out about the Ohio senator who introduced the 13th Amendment to uh, you know the Congress to be able to pass. Well, we've shown the intentions have always been there with the data that I put together tracing the 13th Amendment all the way back to 1777 and the five or six incarnations that it had after that, including one that Lincoln himself authored for D.C., which is in effect right now within, in D.C., authored by Abraham Lincoln before the Civil War, where he uh, particularly allows slavery and involuntary uh, servitude in the District of Columbia. 
So the information is already there for us. We know all of this stuff, and we appreciate the passion that she brings to the table, but we, I don't personally appreciate downplaying what we're trying to achieve and what effects it will have. If your question is, how will this immediately affect anything? Well, how would ending slavery affect anything? How did it affect anything in the Civil War? We spent the next 30 years, Frederick Douglass personally, spent the next 30 years before he figured it out that it was uh, something he needed to denounce, that it was a lie and a fraud. And that took 30 years just to figure that out. So, you know, we can't expect immediate changes, but these are going to be systemic changes that will gradually grow. The first thing that you'll be getting back is your rights as a citizen. So your right to vote comes back, your right to be able to get you know, uh, money for school once you get out of incarceration or apartments or whatever it is you need that government provides, you will have access to that. You didn't have access to, to it because the 13th Amendment stole it from you. So that's the first thing. And the second thing Matt, that will immediately... Can I, yeah. can I, can I interject just on that point you just made? Like you said that slavery, abolishing slavery will give us these rights to vote and stuff just back. Like, yeah. I understand what you're saying. You're giving a historical perspective. But I think that I, I interpreted her statement to be just a practical effect. Like, and I'm going to just give an example. Like, the right to vote. Like, the repealing of the language in the 13th Amendment is not going to give me the right to vote. But repealing the language in the 13th Amendment and repealing the laws that were passed right. in conjunction with that, they denied me the right to vote. Will give me the right to vote back. So that's what I. That's how I interpreted what she was saying. And so it was just the practical nature of she saying, well, just taking that language away is not going to. We're just using the conversation we're having. It's not going to give me the right to vote back. But taking away that language and understanding the laws that were passed to enforce that language, like the the disenfranchisement laws, which falls under Section Two, combined. Um, then gives me the right to vote back. And then there are other laws that deny me of housing and deny me of, of, of food stamps and deny me of social services and deny me certain kind of jobs. All of these laws fall under Section 2, the enforcement aspect. So it's not that I'm, you know what I'm saying, I, I'm just seeing the, the broader picture. But I'm also understanding that I'm coming from the perspective of someone who is being denied freedom. So when I come to the conversation, I'm trying to figure out where does my freedom come from in all of this? Not just this part, but in the totality of it. And my freedom comes about, like Brother Illumba pointed out, if we don't remove the exception language, the state, the, the assistant attorney generals, the attorney generals, and the U.S. attorney's office will always have the legal backing for whatever it is that we're complaining about. So we I'm not to. diminishing the fact that we have to remove the exception language because she said the Section 1 is, is where the judges interpret the law. And as long as it's on the book, the law will allow them to interpret to justify the condition. So they know what that means when they see it. So that takes away that. Then we have to get to the second part, which is the legislative side, where are all these laws that, that we need to be dealing with. So I just wanted to just clarify that, and I, I turn yes. it back over to you. 
Well, you know, it was a confusing conversation because the first part of it was kind of beating us down, saying this is going to do nothing be- immediately. It's not going to change this, not going to change that, not going to change the other thing. And I was thinking, you know, if murder was legal and we were talking about making murder illegal, how would that affect anything? Because that's how you got to think about it. We're talking about making a crime against humanity illegal. It's already legal. So it was confusing to me. But then I, I noticed that the point of confusion for her was, as I said, she's tracing mass incarceration and the carceral state back to chattel slavery and applying these modern terms to this ancient evil rather than doing the reverse and bringing slavery to the present and calling it what it is. Uh, Not the carceral state, not mass incarceration, slavery. And then she went on to even show the intentions or the next half of a thing that these men who put this together had. They all knew what they were doing. And in Abolition Today, we've already been showing that all this, uh, since we've been in season two, we talked about that like three times already and showing the clips from the periods, uh, read the speeches where these men said, this is why we're doing this, in order to recreate slavery. Um, so she she proved our point in that second part, but she said we're on a treadmill since 1865. Well, what's that treadmill called? It's called freaking slavery. And But, you know, as I said, there's a lot to break down in here. Just keep in mind, we need congressional hearings. We need to educate Congress. Just like recently I was asked to talk to some senators to educate them on it. They don't know, just like most of our people don't know. So they need an education, but they need a hardcore education. They need to see the blood. They need to see the body. They need to put their finger in the hole so that they know it's real. That's the type of testimony that we're going to be bringing to them as soon as we can put that together. Uh, as I said, we'll talk about this more on abolition today because these are questions that people want to know the answers to. Uh, and we can provide those questions. All you got to do is ask. And the good thing about her words is they give us an opportunity to have a great conversation. You know, if you want to go in, she puts enough on the table for everyone to go in there and to critique and to fine-tune and to add on and to elaborate. So I'm grateful for her words because of the the opportunity to teach from those words. You know, we get to hear from Max. We get to go back to the historical. You get to, you know what I'm saying, get people to understand the work. We get to break down Section 1, Section 2, the judicial processes and stuff. It just, you know, I think it was just great for for me um, because of the practical aspects of what she was saying. And, and, you know, language is important, but sometimes we have to take the language that people use to communicate and then we transliterate and apply our own languages, words to to, to understand what's trying to And that's what I'm able to do. I'm able I to transliterate like to it. One question you asked, how does it affect you? And this is a lot of people probably want the same answer. We're showing that this is a system intentionally done of slavery and human trafficking. And all of these cases need to be reviewed. We know that there's at least 120,000 people who are wrongfully incarcerated. We can see what the organizations like the Innocence Projects have done with record releases. And we know that 17% of the time, jurors are wrong in the few times that trials even go on. So all these cases need to be reviewed because every single one of you have been potentially abused by the state in order to feed their machine. So that's one thing that immediately I suspect should start happening. It's like finding out that uh, 
and this is a real thing, finding out that the head of the Bureau of Prisons in the state of Mississippi is completely corrupt and catching him in the act as he's going from bank to bank to bank, putting $9,999 in each bank through half a dozen banks, catching him in the act, which actually happened in Mississippi. It's like that, you know? Yeah, I want to jump in and say something. Uh, um, another thing that stands out to me is that Section 1, when you read it, 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 it and I'm going to uh, reiterate it, it says of the 13th Amendment, neither slavery nor involuntary servitude except as punishment for crime shall exist in the states, the United States, and any place subject to its jurisdiction. Okay, and then we have Section 2 that comes and says Congress shall have the authority to enforce this, this law by proper legislation. Did I say that right, Banu? Yes. Section you did. 2? Yes, you did. Okay, so, you know, when when you look at that, um, it's there, I see a contradiction, and, and, and the contradiction is that, okay, Congress is, is, is they being allowed to practice slavery again in a criminal justice system for persons that's convicted of crime. So they, they, they allowing slavery to, you know, they, to, to, um, it, it, it exists in, 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 in a criminal justice system. So, but then in the second the, the 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 second section says that Congress shall enforce this law by proper legislation. So the contradiction I'm saying is, okay, you're saying it's abolished. You're saying you're abolishing slavery, but then you're saying it's 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 excused as punishment for crime. So so, and then in section two. Congress shall enforce this law by proper legislation. So, what, what, what they're saying is this: this is what I get from it. They saying that if a person is convicted of crime, then Congress shall, in on the one hand, Congress shall enforce laws which would enable them to build prisons and stuff. You know, but you know that's the proper legislation that they're talking about to, to enforce that part of it and then and then section two and congress is also given the authority to enforce um the 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 first part of it where it says slavery is abolished so see Mm -hmm. that part right there where it says slavery is abolished congress is given authority to and, and and enforce that part too by proper legislation so there's a contradiction. I want to read something right quick um, that, that Professor Bell sent um, sent me. Um, sent for us to look at, not me, for us to look at. So I want y'all to pay attention to this. Um, this is from the 40th Congress, second session, May 14, 1868. Admission of Southern States. Okay, I I guess this is um, House, some House, um, what this is, 2462, 
Bingham. So I guess this is a senator or representative. But look what he says, though, and this is about the 13th Amendment. Okay, from Bingham. I now desire I now desire to call the attention of the House very briefly to the amendment which I offered to the bill as reported by the committee, and it is to strike from the bill as reported these words that the constitutions of said states shall never be and amended or change as in deprive any citizen or class of citizens of the United States of the right to vote who are now entitled to vote by said constitutions respectively except as punishment for for such crimes as are now felonies at common law, whereof they shall have been duly convicted. One reason why I desire to strike that provision out is this, that these constitutions are in conflict with each other. Now, this is from Mr. Payne. I understand that the gentleman's amendment was to strike out those words and insert certain others. Mr. Bingham, certainly, and I am going to read what I propose to insert, but I desire first to explain what I want to strike out and why. My statement to the House is, and I desire the attention of the House to it, that this provision, as it stands reported by the committee, expressly declares that no person now authorized to vote by the several constitutions of the states named in this bill shall by any amendment to these constitutions ever be deprived of that right. And so that that's all that says, and, and, and sorry for the... the um, the pause is because I'm on the inside and, and, you know, I just have to be watching at the same time. But um, so, w- w- so I hope y'all under- understood what I, I was saying. I agree. It's a two-edged sword. Uh, on one hand, they can yeah. enforce the slavery exception clause to keep slavery going. Uh, on the other hand, they can enforce the part that abolishes slavery. But the history has shown right. that they use badges and incidents to expand uh, and, and attack things that are part of the system of slavery. And that's where we want them to go with Section 2. And if we remove that section from Part 1, uh, it will guarantee that they'll have to do that because there's no other alternative. There's no other thing that you can enforce, only the abolition of slavery. Uh, but exactly. in order for badges and incidents of slavery to be recognized as such, they must fall under the uh, auspices of Section 1. If it's not slavery, then it can't be badges and incidents of slavery. Uh, so that's why I'm so adamant that we treat this as a system of slavery so that it is a crime against humanity and Section 2 can be applicable to this. Right. And it sounds like right. to me, just to add on to what he was saying, 
I may have missed some of it. I'm going to go back and read the document, but I want to make sure I understand this part as I you were talking about the record. Okay. I just sent it, it to you, sound- Ben. It's on, it's on signal. I just sent it to you. Okay. It sounds like there was a right to vote created and that he was trying to go back and make sure that they took that right to vote away from people who were convicted of crime. And so that's that's the part of it that I was trying to make sure that he was trying to make sure that they reserved the right to take the right of vote, reserve the right to take the right to vote away. Which goes back to what Max said from the beginning. As a slave, there are just certain rights that you you can't have in this society. But it sounds like they had a conflict or something. But I want to go back and and and, uh, and, and review that part of it too, because uh, that would be something that um would be interesting worthwhile. We're running up on about um, nine minutes left. Uh, we're getting ready to close out the show. Uh, we didn't get a chance to get into all of the components of the parole legislation, but I will tell you all that number one on the list after federal parole is a mandatory parole uh, guideline. If you complete the guideline, you complete the rehabilitation, you're automatically going to make parole. You're taking away the discretion, which is the authority. Other slave master to say yay or nay when it comes to the question of freedom. And like Brother Ilama said, we have to put all of our arguments in the historical context of the institution of slavery in order to make our, our argument as to why the pathway to freedom must be unconditional. We can no longer live as citizens in America where our freedom, our liberty is conditional and based on the discretion of people who are agents of the system, former prosecutors former police officers, law enforcement people. These are the people that occupy these positions on these parole boards. All of these people are vested in the system, in the institutional state. We have to dismantle these systems by any means necessary, and we are coming up with an effective means to do that and to require that these funds be redirected that have been used to uphold the system. So just wanted to add that, but in closing, we're going to let Savannah close us out because she has some interesting inform- some, 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 some interesting and useful information about these processes that we have to understand as inside organizers and outside organizers where you have organizing on the inside, but you have policy on the outside, and how these things have to come together to work. We can't just do one or the other. Um, there, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a two-pronged process. And she has some interesting analysis on on how to bring these things together and get people to just understand what it takes to to what does it take to activate section two basically is what it breaks down to. So we're gonna turn it over to Savannah our last seven, six minutes or so and she's gonna close us out. I think it's probably about three minutes. <laughs> um, but I just really wanna hit on the fact that um like Working with the National Freedom Movement really brought home um, how difficult it is to function in really what what appears to be two sectors of the world, but it's one community, right? So you have the folks on the inside organizing around what's going on on, on the inside and us as outside support trying to figure out where we fit in in their out here, Right. Um, I think, like, historically, um, when when working with people who are formerly and currently incarcerated, you know, it's like organizations come with their agenda. They come with their campaign. They come with, you know, their issues. 
and ask the folks on the inside yeah. to kind of fall in line type thing. And so working with National Freedom Movement, you know, we're asking the people on the inside, like, hey, what are your initiatives? What are your needs? Um, and really taking a look at how we can best support them. And I think people forget that, like, grassroots mobilization is one component of these campaigns. The legislation is the other component. And, yes, you can do either or, but they really work in tandem in order to be successful in making the change, right? And it's a different perspective when you're on the inside because, you know, the policy aspect the folks on the inside don't really have as much input in it without the help of the outside support. And so communication is a big thing. You know, I mean, we've been on calls that people have had to hang up because of security issues. You know, we can't have meetings at certain times for the same reason. And so just those barriers in communication alone can affect um, the way you address the certain issues. So, like, when looking at parole and parole reform and what we're trying to do, like, a lot of these men, mainly men, but men and women, um, they're not eligible for parole. So the fact that they are, like, taking the risk in order to make sure, um, like Benu has said and, you know, the campaign message is that we are creating a pathway to freedom for everybody. It's, it's essential. So I think everybody needs to just focus on those two components, the legislation and the mobilization, and just understanding that, you know, um, organizing on the inside doesn't look the same as organizing on the outside. So, you know, there's got to be some compromise in order for us to be able to move forward as a collective. Hello? Hello? Hey, you got my mouth, I'll say something. Go ahead, go ahead. This is uh, uh, Laramie from uh, Baton Rouge. I'm with the Carceray, Louisiana. I'm part of the New Black Panther Party. And to get back to the effect, the immediate effect, um, and I'm going to be real quick, I think there will be an effect uh, economically because if, when you get these guys in prison, when you, when you get these guys in prison to uh, to not be working at the police station, these corner stores, and these fields, doing all this painting work and all that kind of stuff, oh, those, those things, then they have to employ people on the outside like, to get contracts and so on and so forth. These LLCs actually pay people right wages. So I think that will be, that's the immediate effect that I've, I've been thinking about myself. So I've been telling these guys, get you a company, get it started with a janitorial, with it's painting, you know, wherever it is, uh, uh, a lawnmower company, stuff like that, because they're going to need people to work on these police cars. They won't have anybody working on police cars. Get you a company that, you know, washes cars, because that's what they're doing them for free. But they correct they create this site to the guys on the inside that, you know, they're free for 12 hours or 10 hours a day or whatnot, and it's really not. But I think it's going to have an effect economically. We're going to be able to give money back into the neighborhood, and also when they get out, they can also get those jobs with those guys working. So that, that's my take on the effect economically about uh, the prison industrial complex and, uh, you know, about the voluntary for service student in the society prison. Thanks a lot. Really appreciate it. Thank you, everyone. I know, Max, you've been on us about being hard on these breaks. we got to go. We'll be back next Thursday. This is Live from the Plantation. Thanks for joining You can uh, find everything we spoke about tonight at uh, our Abolition Today page on Facebook, and you can listen to the archives of Live from the Plantation anytime you like at abolitiontoday.org. Peace. 
My name is Tobe Chuku Dubem Wigwe. I'm an Igbo boy from the southwest side of Houston, Texas, and it is an honor to be able to do uh, our version of Wake Up Everybody by the legendary Harold Melvin in the Blue Notes, a.k.a. Teddy Pendergrass. Uh, so today, as you hear my baby talking in the background, I am Toby Pendergrass. Let's go. <clears throat> Wake up everybody, no more sleeping in bed No more backwards thinking, time for thinking ahead The world has changed so very much from what it used to be There is so much hatred, war and poverty Wake up all you teachers, time to teach a new way Maybe then they'll listen to what you have to say Cause they're the ones who's coming up and the world is in their hands So when you teach the children, teach them the very best you can Same Maya. The world won't get no better. 
talk to him.